Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. We often think of 1920s America as the Roaring Twenties. We envision speakeasies and flappers, young women with bobbed hair and no corsets. It is remembered as a glamorous period of excess, but also as a period where mass consumption of manufactured goods and popular culture rose to levels that we can recognize today. Newfangled radios brought baseball games directly into people's living rooms. Electric vacuum cleaners sucked the dirt out of mass-produced rugs bought from a department store on credit. These heady post-war years exemplified both the possibilities of what freedom and prosperity meant to many Americans, as well as the limits of those freedoms. Nativism, racism, and the first Red Scare marched right alongside the growth of American consumer culture, the Great Migration, and the Jazz Age. In today's episode, we're going to explore race in the 1920s and dig into a few key moments and movements to see how race and ethnicity played a key role in shaping the American interwar years. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Marissa. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. Thanks for joining us today. Before we dive in, we want to thank you, our listeners, and especially our Patreon supporters who help keep this history excavation team digging. A big shout out and thanks to our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons, Lauren, Edward, Iris, Denise, Susan, Agnes, Peggy, Colin, Maddie, Maria, Jesse, and Hannah. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. With the entry of the United States into World War I, many African Americans wanted to prove their patriotism, anticipating their being finally seen by white America as full citizens deserving of respect. When the U.S. declared war against Germany on April 4, 1917, more than 20,000 black men enlisted in the U.S. military. After the Selective Service Act was enacted in May 1917, those numbers increased dramatically. By July of 1917, over 700,000 African Americans had registered for military service. An article in the black newspaper Chicago Defender stated that, quote, the race throughout the country has made up its mind to one thing, and this is the men drafted, if called into the service of the country, must be called into the army and not to the farm, end quote. Um, unfortunately, the military was unwilling to be a vehicle for social change, choosing status quo over effective military logic. Black recruits found themselves barred from service in the Marine Corps. They were admitted to the Navy, but were only allowed to serve in menial positions. And black men were accepted into the Army, but only in segregated units. 
However, African-American soldiers provided much-needed support overseas to the European allies. Those in black units who served as laborers, stevedores, and in engineer service battalions were the first to arrive in France in 1917. One of the first African-American infantry regiments to serve in World War I was the 369th Infantry Regiment, commonly known as the Harlem Hellfighters. The Hellfighters, like many other black units, were assigned to the French Army throughout the war effort because many white American soldiers refused to perform combat duties with black Americans. The U.S. Army campaigned strenuously to persuade the French not to treat black soldiers as equals, not to eat or socialize with them, or even shake their hands. A memo sent to the French mayors of the Meuse Division upon the arrival of the African-American 372nd Infantry Regiment in 1918 stated, quote, The question is of great importance to the French people, and even more so to the American towns, the population of which will be affected later when the troops return to the United States. It therefore becomes necessary for both the colored and white races that undo mixing of these two be circumspectly prevented, end quote. Basically, this memo is saying, don't treat our black American soldiers with equal respect as whites because then our black soldiers are going to expect to be treated with respect once they return to America. The French army had from the start included many colonial units with non-white personnel from countries like Morocco, Algeria, and Senegal. Also, since the French desperately needed fresh troops, they were less concerned with race than the Americans. For the most part, the French did not show hatred towards them and did not racially segregate black American troops, and they were treated as if they were no different than any other French unit. Black American soldiers were issued French weapons, helmets, belts, and packs, but continued to wear their U.S. uniforms. However, this disconnection from the U.S. Army troubled many black troops. Harry Haywood of the 370th Infantry, another black unit in France, wrote that upon arrival in France, quote, the American equipment with which we had trained was taken away and we were issued French weapons, rifles, carbines, machine guns, automatic rifles, pistols, helmets, gas masks, and knapsacks, end quote. He noted the men's feelings about this. Uh, he says, the men were greatly chagrined when they were ordered to turn in their American equipment and were issued French equipment instead. Uh, historian Chad Williams notes that, quote, even the food rations of the French army, consisting of soup and two quarts of red wine, differed dramatically from those of the American expeditionary forces. From the guns they wielded down to the food they ate, the black soldiers of the 93rd Division had to confront the reality of being in, but not of, the U.S. Army, end quote. The 369th Hellfighters provided the longest service of any regiment in a foreign army and, unfortunately, had the record for the most casualties as well. The Hellfighters fought in the trenches for 191 days straight. Private Henry Johnson of the 369th was the first American to receive the Croix de Guerre, a French Medal of Valor. It's the War Cross is what it translates to. On December 13th, 1918, one month after Armistice Day, the French government awarded the Croix de Guerre to 170 soldiers from the 369th, and a unit citation was awarded to the entire regiment. Black colonial troops marched in the victory parade in Paris, but the Wilson administration did not allow black Americans to march in the parade under the American flag. 
At the end of the war, the 369th returned to New York City and paraded through the city on February 17, 1919. Thousands of people lined city streets to welcome the black soldiers home. Faces in the crowd were predominantly white when the parade began on Fifth Avenue at 61st Street. But as the parade proceeded uptown and marched into Harlem, black New Yorkers crammed onto the sidewalks to cheer them on. Henry Johnson rode on an open-top car holding a bouquet of red lilies and proudly wearing his French croix de guerre. Chad Williams paints a wonderful picture of this parade, so I'm just going to quote him at length here. The men of the regiment, donning their French-issued helmets, rifle bayonets gleaming in the winter sun, and marching in a military formation perfected while serving with the French, made for an imposing sight. They conveyed an image of power, discipline, and aggressive black manhood. The New York Times was particularly fascinated by the regiment's impressive stature, commenting on the bigness and battle-scarred, grim-visaged demeanor of the men. The dramatic return represented a visually striking claim for full, inclusive citizenship in front of New York's most prominent white citizens. The parade became a marker of African-American service to the nation. In the 1920s and 1930s, the 369th marched through the neighborhood each year, traveling from their armory to catch the train to their annual summer camp. This parade day became an unofficial holiday, with Harlem school children being let out of classes so they could wave the men on. African Americans used the Great War to show their patriotism and to prove they could contribute to the protection and advancement of the country. Because of their valorous service in protecting democracy in Europe, African American servicemen expected more equality in wages and job opportunities when they returned home. In the aftermath of World War I, W.E.B. Du Bois urged returning soldiers to continue fighting for democracy at home. In the article, Returning Soldiers, printed in the May 1919 issue of The Crisis, Du Bois strikes at the heart of American hypocrisy and racism, writing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote this whole thing because I just think it's so powerful. He writes, quote, We are returning from war. The crisis and tens of thousands of black men were drafted into a great struggle. We fought gladly and to the last drop of blood. For America and her highest ideals, we fought in far-off hope. For the dominant Southern oligarchy entrenched in Washington, we fought in bitter resignation. For the America that represents and gloats in lynching, disenfranchisement, caste, brutality, and devilish insult, for this, in the hateful upturning and mixing of things, we were forced by a vindictive fate to fight also. But today we return— We stand again to look America squarely in the face and call a spade a spade. This country of ours, despite all its better souls have done and dreamed, is yet a shameful land. It lynches. And lynching is barbarism of a degree of contemptible nastiness, unparalleled in human history. Yet for 50 years we have lynched two Negroes a week, and we have kept this up right through the war. It disenfranchises its own citizens. Disenfranchisement is the deliberate theft and robbery of the only protection of poor against rich and black against white. The land that disenfranchises its citizens and calls itself a democracy lies and knows it lies. It encourages ignorance. It steals from us. It insults us. 
This is the country to which we soldiers of democracy return. This is the fatherland for which we fought. But it is our fatherland. It was right for us to fight. The faults of our country are our faults. Under similar circumstances, we would fight again. But by the God in heaven, we are cowards and jackasses if now that war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States of America or know the reason why. That's It's such a powerful piece, and it really sums up um, the mood of many African Americans after the Great War. And just to be clear, African American leaders were in no way unanimous in their support to go to war. Um, Labor leader A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owens, editors of the socialist newspaper The Messenger, wrote, quote, Let Du Bois, etc. volunteer to go to France to make the world safe for democracy. We would rather make Georgia safe for the Negro, end quote. So before and after, there was no singular black voice, so to speak, but a plethora of voices and ideas on how to solve the, the quote unquote race question. So now let's give a bit of context to what contemporaries called this quote-unquote race question at the dawn of the Roaring Twenties. Um, On the eve of World War I, 90% of African Americans uh, or 90% of the African American population in the United States lived in the southern United States. But between the years 1910 and 1920, Half a million black individuals and families left the South to travel north for the warmth of other suns, as Langston Hughes described it. This mass movement of people is known as the Great Migration. During this period, the black population in Chicago more than doubled, so too for New York City and Detroit. Smaller Rust Belt cities like Buffalo, Rochester, and Cleveland had similar gains. There were many reasons why black people decided to migrate from the South to the North. Uh, The opportunity for higher paid, less demeaning work was a huge factor. World War I increased factory production and industrialization, which provided many opportunities for better work and wages. Educational opportunities were also a huge draw. Non-segregated schooling meant that black children would be educated in a proper school building with running water and heat in the winter, not a shack on a back lot as in most places in the South. Black migrants also looked forward to being able to vote in local and national elections. While not illegal in the South, the quote-unquote redemption of Southern states after the Civil War had all but barred black men from voting at the polls. Violence, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, and other such chicanery prevented the overwhelming majority of eligible black people from voting in the South. And, of course, finally, migrating north was a way to escape the violence of the South, the violence of Jim Crow laws, the violence of being treated as second class, the violence and rape of black women by white men, and the violence of mob rule and lynching. All very real reasons why migrating to the North could be beneficial for Black people. 
The Great Migration technically lasted from 1915 to 1970, but we tend to think of the bulk of this migration happening during the interwar years between World War I and World War II. Journalist Isabel Wilkerson, in her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Warmth of Other Suns, chronicles the migration in minute detail, but um, they also tackle the underrepresented part, uh, latter part of this migration with a lot of oral histories and interviews. Upon arriving in northern cities, black migrants experienced a whole new level of freedom in the north that was just not possible in the south. However, it was no utopia, and they experienced numerous disappointments in the north as well. African Americans faced restrictive employment in northern cities. They might earn better wages than they had in the South, but they were not hired in upwardly mobile positions in high numbers. Instead, they found themselves relegated to employment as janitors and maids, busboys, and other supportive service roles. Additionally, black workers were barred from joining unions like the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, and other craft unions. More radical unions like the International Workers of the World, the IWW, which had welcomed all workers and races into their fold, were practically defunct after World War I and the First Red Scare. African-American migrants also faced severe housing discrimination and segregation in northern cities. Although they might be making higher wages, they were also spending higher amounts on food and housing. Places to live in the cities were in short supply, which was compounded by racially segregated neighborhoods, forcing many black families to cram multiple people into small, dilapidated rented homes or apartments. Southern African Americans could also experience prejudice by northern black people who felt that southerners were uneducated and unrefined and worried that their southern cousins' behavior would undermine northern black struggle for equality. Yet even with these setbacks, the opportunities that black people had in the North were overwhelmingly better than what they had left behind. Streams of migrants flowed into northern cities, following rail and bus lines. Isabel Wilkerson notes that, quote, migration streams were so predictable that by the end of the migration, one can tell where a black northerner's family was just from the city that the person grew up in. So a good portion of blacks in Detroit, for instance, um, had roots in Tennessee, Alabama, western Georgia, or the Florida panhandle because the historic rail lines connected those places during the migration years. This influx of black Southerners drastically changed the racial makeup of entire neighborhoods and cities. The period after World War I was marked by an era of serious self-reflection among African Americans and fostered what we call the New Negro Movement. This term was coined by writer Alan Locke and was the name of a book that collected the works of many black authors of the Harlem Renaissance. The New Negro Movement promoted a renewed sense of racial pride, cultural self-expression, economic independence, and progressive politics. New York City was a popular destination for Black Americans during the Great Migration. The city's Black population grew 257 percent, from 91,709 in 1910 to 327,706 by 1930. The explosion of artistic and Afrocentric cultural expression among African Americans in neighborhoods like Harlem created the Harlem Renaissance between the end of World War I and the lead up to World War II. 
Writers, photographers, artists, playwrights, and musicians associated with the Renaissance asserted pride in black life and identity, a rising consciousness of inequality and discrimination, and interest in the rapidly changing modern world. Another major movement during this time was called Garveyism and its followers Garveyites. Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican newspaper publisher and labor organizer who built one of the largest black nationalist organizations in the world. Garvey founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA, in Jamaica in 1914 with his co-founder and future wife, Amy Ashwood. The UNIA began as a fraternal organization focused on black racial uplift through education and jobs training for black people. However, Garvey struggled to grow the UNIA in Jamaica. At the invitation of Booker T. Washington, Garvey immigrated to Harlem, New York in 1916. Garvey began the Harlem UNIA in a basement with 17 members, but in less than two years, the UNIA grew enormously. Garvey's message of Black economic and political independence resonated with many African Americans in the United States, and soon branches were forming in cities across the country and eventually in different parts of the world. By 1920, Garvey claimed nearly a thousand local divisions in the United States, the Caribbean, Central America, Canada, and Africa. Garvey published a newspaper titled Negro World, which spread the UNIA's message of racial pride. The paper touted the richness of African culture and preached a message of black economic and political independence. Garvey insisted that black people would only be respected once they were economically strong. He encouraged followers to open businesses that would cater to black customers and to create a black economy within white capitalism. Garvey practiced what he preached and established the Negro Factories Corporation to promote black-owned businesses. He launched a shipping company called the Black Star Line, as well as a chain of restaurants and grocery stores, laundries, a hotel, and a printing press. Large UNIA meetings were alive with excitement and felt akin to religious revivals. Official UNIA songs and slogans were interspersed with prayer and pageants. Entire families could come for a day of activism and excitement, participating in debates, plays, and even fashion shows. The UNIA provided many Black Americans an organization with actionable ends. Men, many who were World War I veterans, could join the African Legion. Those under the age of 18 could join the UNIA Juvenile Division. Women joined the Universal Motor Corps, an auxiliary of the African Legion, where they learned military discipline, automobile driving, and auto repair. Women could also join the Black Cross nurses, modeled after the Red Cross. Garvey pushed for a return to Africa, where Black Americans should reject the American political system and move to Africa. Although Garvey was popular, not all of his followers were supporters of his return to Africa idea. In fact, Garvey and Black leaders such as W.E.B. Du Bois became bitter enemies as they envisioned different ways for Black people to exert their independence and full citizenship. Beginning in 1919, the Garvey and the UNIA movement became a target of the Bureau of Investigation, the precursor to the FBI. 
In a campaign directed by the young J. Edgar Hoover, Bureau of Investigation officers tracked and reported on UNIA activities across the country. Hoover also coordinated seven federal agencies to investigate Garvey and the movement from all angles until he eventually brought him down. In 1922, Garvey was indicted for mail fraud. He served two years in prison and was deported to Jamaica in 1927. And I think it's safe to say this state surveillance of Garvey and the UNIA was a precursor to COINTELPRO and Hoover's fear of a quote-unquote black messiah who could unify African Americans. And we talk about COINTELPRO uh, in depth in our Black Panthers episode, which we'll link in um, the blog post. After Garvey's arrest and later deportation, the movement began to break apart into different organizations. Nevertheless, the spirit of Garveyism inspired many Black Americans. In fact, Malcolm X's parents had been Garvey supporters, giving us a generational glimpse of the long civil rights movement. Militancy of World War I vets and movements like the New Negro Movement and Garveyism increased the anxieties of whites who feared that they were losing social status and dominance. And this unease erupted in violence during the Red Summer of 1919. In April of 1919, racial tensions in Jenkins County, Georgia flared and white mobs burned the black churches in town and killed numerous black men. In the spring and summer months that followed, similar massacres happened across the United States throughout the summer. Violent white assaults against black people began spiraling out of control in major cities like Philadelphia, Washington, New York, and Chicago, places where African Americans were migrating in large numbers during the Great Migration. From April to November 1919, roughly 30 riots broke out across the eastern U.S. with hundreds of accounts of beatings, lynchings, and the burning of black churches and buildings by white people. These examples of anti-black collective violence are often and very problematically termed race riots, which gives the impression of groups of blacks and whites in conflict with one another, right, a both sides kind of thing. But in almost every single case, all of this violence was started by white mobs initiating the violence in black neighborhoods and against black people. In this time period, it probably couldn't have started the other way around. I mean, groups of, you know, black men were just riding in the streets or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, you would have had the 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 National Guard coming in real quick on that, right? Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think it yeah. could get to that point if it was any other way. Um White violence in Chicago started when a black teenager, Eugene Williams, was swimming at the beach on Lake Michigan. The raft he was on floated into the whites-only swimming section. A white man threw rocks at Williams, hitting him so hard that he drowned in the water. Oh my god, that's horrible. Police showed up and tensions flared when a white police officer prevented a black police officer from arresting the man who killed Williams. Instead, officers arrested a black male bystander. Black observers began to loudly object to what was happening on the beach, unsurprisingly, prompting white bystanders to start beating and chasing them. And this started a frenzy, and white mobs soon started spreading into Black neighborhoods, attacking Black businesses, homes, and Black people. The Chicago riot raged for five days killing 38 people, roughly 24 African-Americans and 15 white people, and injuring 500 people. Approximately 2,000 people, most of whom were black, lost their homes to vandalism and fire. 
but white racial violence was not isolated to Red Summer. On May 30th, 1921, a young black teenager named Dick Rowland entered an elevator at the Drexel Building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Shortly thereafter, a white female elevator operator screamed, and Rowland was seen running from the area. The next morning, police found Roland and arrested him. They arrested him because rumors of what had supposedly happened on that elevator had reached a fever pitch. The Tulsa Tribune ran a front-page story that afternoon with the headline, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator, reporting that Roland was arrested for sexually assaulting Paige. This, of course, whipped up a frenzied mob intent on justice through lynching. As the rumor mill churned, a group of white men gathered outside the courthouse and demanded that the sheriff give them Roland. The sheriff refused to hand Roland over to the mob. Soon, a group of about 25 armed black men, many of them World War I veterans, arrived at the courthouse to help the sheriff guard Roland, but the sheriff turned them away. An hour later, a group of roughly 75 armed black men returned to the courthouse to protect Roland. They were met by an armed collection of roughly 1,500 white men. Inevitably, shots were fired, and soon fighting broke out. The outnumbered black men retreated into the prosperous African-American Tulsa neighborhood of Greenwood, known colloquially as Black Wall Street, because of the prosperousness of the area and black-owned businesses. The bustling neighborhood boasted two schools, two newspapers, a hospital, and numerous Black-owned businesses. Throughout the night, gangs of white Tulsans rampaged Greenwood. Some of these men were even deputized and given weapons by city officials to end the quote-unquote riot. But instead, they participated in it. Rumors helped fuel the ongoing violence. Many whites falsely believed that a large-scale insurrection of black Tulsans was imminent, and rumors spread that black reinforcements from nearby towns and cities were on their way. None of this was true, of course, but it fueled the hysteria. In the early hours of June 1st, white people continued to rampage the Greenwood District, looting and burning homes and businesses over an area of 35 city blocks. Eyewitness accounts said that planes dropped dynamite on Greenwood. The white mob shot black people indiscriminately in the street. Firefighters who arrived to help put out fires later testified that rioters had threatened them with guns and forced them to leave. There are images of the devastation leveled on Greenwood. And when I show these pictures to my classes, students are shocked at how completely decimated the streets of Greenwood are. Um, some of these images remind me of the scorched earth images taken of Georgia after Sherman's march to the sea during the Civil War. Like the level of devastation is just kind of unbelievable, particularly when you consider that generations of black wealth was looted and burned in a 24 hour time span. In money terms, property damage amounted to more than $1.5 million lost in real estate. That's like $20 million or more in today's money. Roughly 10,000 black people were left homeless and 35 square blocks were burned. In the hours after the Tulsa Race Massacre, is that what it's called? The Tulsa Race Massacre? Yeah, it used to be called the Tulsa Race Riot, okay. but obviously riot is mm. very um, yeah, problematic. Really, yeah, yeah. So in the hours after the Tulsa Race Massacre, all charges against Dick Rowland were dropped. Police determined that Rowland had stumbled into Paige, causing her to yelp. After the Tulsa Race Massacre, as black Tulsans worked to rebuild their ruined homes and businesses, white Tulsans worked hard to forget about the event. 
In fact, there was a concerted effort to cover it up. There were never any ceremonies or statues to commemorate the horrible events of May 31st through June the 1st, 1921. Scholars have discovered that the Tulsa Tribune newspaper removed the front page story of May 31st that sparked the chaos from its archival volumes, and police and state militia archives about the riot were missing as well. That is something. Wow. The Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics recorded 36 dead, 26 black, and 10 white. However, historians estimate the death toll was much, much higher at around 300. We had that scenario in our episode on apartheid as well, where in some of the the kind of race um, Mm -hmm. massacres that happened then, there's nobody can agree on how many people died. Um, There are currently archaeological excavations going on in Tulsa on mass graves dated to the massacre as we speak. It's really not until recently that the Tulsa Race Massacre is mentioned in history books or acknowledged as part of America's sad and bloody history of inflicting violence on black Americans. So obviously it's this kind of overt violence and overt racism and then the not so overt racism that black people were fed up with in the 1920s. Often we think of the civil rights movement as something from the 1950s and the 1960s, but the civil rights movement has a long history in the United States. Black Americans continually resisted white supremacy through organizations like the UNIA, the NAACP, and other civil rights groups. In the face of such extreme violence, just rebuilding a house or rebuilding a business was really a fierce act of resistance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there, we have an example of that in the apartheid, apartheid episode also where the apartheid state was sort of just kept disassembling this woman's house and she just kept building it back up again. You know, and that's more than just that that's resistance and that's takes a lot of bravery, I would think. Um, yeah. It's crazy. It's like, hey, we're still here. Yep. You can keep coming, but we're still here. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ku Klux Klan also had a resurgence during the late 1910s and 1920s. You'll remember that the first KKK arose after the Civil War to terrorize black people and Republicans. The second rising was in response to a number of things, and one of the things that they were inspired by is the 1915 film Birth of a Nation, which Elizabeth has done an episode on. I was on that one, too. It was really good. Another boogeyman for the KKK was increased immigration from Eastern European countries that had begun in about the 1890s. Many of these immigrants were non-Protestants. They were often Catholic or Jewish. This second clan peaked in the 1920s when its membership exceeded 4 million people nationally. Members of the new KKK were prominent men and women in society. It wasn't an underground organization. In fact, more than 30,000 KKK members paraded down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. on August 8, 1925, faces uncovered. White-robed, anti-Semitic, and racist Klansmen participated in marches, parades, and nighttime cross-burnings all over the country. The revived Klan was fueled partly by white supremacy, masked as patriotism. (laughs) Sounds familiar. Shocking. (laughs) I know. And partly by a romantic nostalgia for the Old South. But, more importantly, it expressed the defensive reaction of white Protestants who felt threatened by the large-scale immigration of the previous decades that had changed the ethnic character of American societies. 
The Klan's demands that control of the United States be returned to, quote, citizens of the old stock reflected widely held sentiments in the 1920s. So even if one wasn't a card-carrying member of the Klan, their sentiments were not deal-breakers for a lot of Protestant white Americans. One result of this was a far more sweeping change to immigration policy than ever before. The Immigration Act of 1924, also called the Johnson-Reed Act, aimed to ensure that descendants of the old immigrants from Western Europe forever outnumbered the children of the new. The act limited the number of immigrants allowed to entry into the United States through a national origins quota. The quota provided immigration visas to 2% of the total number of people of each nationality in the United States as of the 1890 national census. That meant that the new quota calculations included large numbers of people of British, Irish, and German descent whose families had resided in the United States for a long time. As a result, the percentage of visas available to individuals from the British Isles and Western Europe increased, but newer immigration from other areas like Southern and Eastern Europe was limited. The act set a total immigration quota of 165,000 for countries outside of the Western Hemisphere, an 80% reduction from the average before World War I. It also barred immigrants from Asia, including Japan. Lobbyists from the West Coast, where a majority of Japanese, Korean, and other East Asian immigrants had settled, were especially concerned with excluding Asian immigrants. The 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act had already put an end to Chinese immigration for the most part. But as Japanese and to a lesser degree Korean and Filipino people immigrated to the Western United States, an exclusionary movement formed in reaction to what nativists called the Yellow Peril. When the 1924 Johnson-Reed Act was established, it created a new category of people, the illegal alien. The Border Control Agency was created with this bill and was created to stop Eastern and Southern Europeans who tried to sneak across the border from Mexico and Canada. So there you have it. On one hand, we've painted a pretty bleak picture of race relations during the interwar years. Yet on the other hand, we've highlighted some amazing movements like the New Negro Movement and Garveyism, both focused on black racial pride. We've covered a lot of different elements in this episode, and perhaps um, I'm pretty sure we'll do some deeper dives into specifics in a future episode, episode. But I think it's safe to say that the 1920s show in stark effect both the potential and the limits of American freedom and prosperity. Oh, my God. There, and you know that most Americans in the 20s and 30s had those Courier and Ives prints in their in their homes. Like almost everyone had a Courier and Ives print. And there many of them are just so unbelievably racist. And it's amazing to me that that was just normal mm-hmm. and that white white families were just like, yeah, this is just the stylish thing we do. You know, it's so I, you know, I, I see your we'll point in to- that even if you sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say we'll have to put some of those Courier and Ives prints because, you know, when I think of Courier and Ives, I'm actually not thinking of racist prints. I'm thinking of like, I don't know, kids ice skating on a frozen pond. So (laughs) really? Oh, I I, there's a lot of they're like um, they're like comics and they have like one liners that are supposed to be jokes um, like but they're horrifically racist. And then the black folks that they that they um, 
draw in there are always like look absurd like they're like dressed absurdly and there's one where they're riding a horse and the horse as you can tell is not taken care of very well it's like um it's like uh what's the word it's it's like under it's like malnourished and um it doesn't have like the right horseshoes on it and like it's it's they're 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 basically saying that black people are trying to be like white people and failing at it it's really really horrible um there's there's a lot of them Oh, is it Darktown Comics? Here we go. Yes. Yep. That's the series. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's bad. I'm actually unfamiliar with these. Oh, my God. Well, the reason I know about it is because Niagara University um, owns two of them. Oh. Huh. Wow. Yeah, it's bad. But my, you know. Everyday racism. There you go. No, that just goes to the point that you don't have to be like some you know, member of the KKK or be some anti-black activist or something, you know, to, to be super racist at this time. It was, yeah, it was totally. Mainstream. So yeah. So I'll link these Darktown comics into the blog post, digpodcast.org. If you can go to patreon.com backslash dig and you can become one of our patrons and get a shout out from the show. You also get early access to the episodes and the episodes are ad free. Um, also you should head to digpodcast.org. That's where you can find our blog and our show notes. We have full transcripts on the blog there. Um, and you can kind of explore our other episodes, maybe buy some merch. Um, please follow us on, uh, Twitter. It's dig underscore history and check us out on Facebook. We have a Facebook group called the dig history pod squad. It's very chill, mostly for sharing history memes and the like. You're all welcome. Thanks for listening. Bye. Second African Americans, second, what the f? I don't even, what would that even mean? Um, we often think of 1920s America as the roaring, roaring. When the US declared war, we often think of the 1920s, nope. Firefighters who arrived to help put out fires later testified, oh my god, why can't I say this like a normal person? Eyewitness accounts said the planes dropped dynamite, wait, what? Holy um, sorry. Obviously, <laughs> um, I would. Obviously, you can tell I didn't read this. Um, from those of the Mer- American Expeditionary Force. Expeditionary. Am I saying that right? Expedition. A memo sent to the French mayors of the Meuse Division upon the arrival of the African American thir- 372nd Infantry Regiment. <laughs> okay, hang on. It's a lot of. I know. It's a lot of it's words. A memo sent to the French mayors of the Meuse division. Is that how you would say that? Because that's how a French person. So that's a French word. Okay. So So go for it. (laughs) Okay. Whenever I see Garveyites, I can't help but think that it says Graveyites every time. (laughs) I know Marcus Garvey just looks like Garvey to me, but Graveyites. It's just what I say in my head. I'm a Graveyite. I like (laughs) Me too. On December 13th, 1918, one month after the after here we go because <laughs> i say armistice funny apparently oh do you um i say armistice and it's armistice oh i don't know sarah and april think it's hilarious so on <laughs>